Tahoraki Gulf Marine Park, ko te pātaka kai o Tikapa Moana, te Moana Nui Atoi, is 1.2 million hectares in size with more than 40 pest-free islands and six marine reserves. This seascape lies on the east coast of the Tāmaki Makoto and Waikato regions, stretching down to the eastern coastline of the Coromandel Peninsula to Waihi. Kia ora, I'm Kiane Matatasipu, the host of Hauraki Gulf Kōrero, a podcast established by the Hauraki Gulf Forum. Here you will be introduced to Kaitiaki of Te Moana Nuiatoi, Te Kapa Moana, to discuss the state of the Gulf and explore the many ways in which these groups and individuals are taking action to achieve a healthy, thriving marine environment. Tēnā koe, Dan Hikuroa. Thank you for joining us on the Hauraki Golf Kōrero podcast today. Uh, it is so great to have uh, a kōrero with you. Um, you have been a part of the whānau and working with the University of Auckland. You have done mahi uh, in various capacities for the Hauraki Gulf, uh, part of that um, reporting for the State of the Gulf report. And uh, as we just mentioned uh, to each other before we hit record, you are a passionate uh, slave worker for Papatuanuku. <laughs> aye, aye. <laughs> and spending all your time uh, doing doing the most important mahi, which is uh, for our taiao. And so it's really lovely to have you here and to be able to it all with you. Would you... Um, could we please start with you introducing yourself and a little bit about who you are and your background? Ka whai, Kiani. Uh, he mokopone tēnei a Ngāti Manipoto, Waikato Tainui, uh, Ngāti Whananga Hoki. Uh, nā te mihi, kei te tipu au te raki pai whenua, kei tāmaki makaurau. Uh, kei te mahi au inai nei uh, te whare wānanga o tāmaki, uh, kei roto te wānanga o paipapa. Tewanang or Waipapa Māori Studies Department. So I have a, I have training in science. So I did a PhD in paleontology. Uh, I then followed that up with a postdoc in climate change, looking at how the oceans responded to climate change in the ancient past. Uh, and since then, for like the last almost twenty years, I've been working with, within, and for Māori communities, help trying to realise their dreams or help trying to solve the challenges. Uh, that they face. Mm. What led you into that kind of mahi? Were you always quite passionate about our taia? Aye, aye. I, people have said, you know, what's taking you on this journey, you know, and I think it was just, it was always in me and it's just through my journeys, through university uh, and then subsequently, you know, I, I taught for a few years at Te Whare Wānanga or Awanui Arangi and Fakatane, which was which I see as a really seminal moment in in, in my path and my career and my journey. And I suppose, you know, I was always interested in in the beach and the oceans and hills and volcanoes and rocks and forests and how everything worked and the natural processes. And uh, going to university to try and study a bit more of that was was a natural choice. Uh, and then and then a PhD in in paleontology and life in the ancient oceans uh, followed up and then I was became interested in a bit more of some of the social issues. I was interested in climate change and and how the oceans have responded to climate change, uh, more specifically, you know, rapid increases in temperature in the past. And it was while I was completing the PhD that I did some teaching at, at Awanui Arangi Ke Fakatane that really began to open up my eyes to to Matauranga, to the Taiao, to to this different way of knowing and seeing and, and and being in the world and making sense of and explaining the world. And I really credit uh, some of my colleagues down there at the time, and of course the students uh, that that were in the classes I was with. The role of 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 kayako and, and rangatahi was was constantly changing uh, in that place. You know, I might teach them some formal things about plate tectonics, but then they were teaching me some matauranga stories about amazing, amazing things. So, yeah, my my interest in the environment and the taiao and and incorporating more than just one way of explaining it and one way trying to to understand it and make sense of it uh, is has been part of part of my journey. Yeah, so. For the last wee while, I've, I've been focusing part of that energy on looking at the Hauraki Gulf or Te Kapa Moana or Te Moana Toy to try and understand how, how its Modi has been impacted. Mm. Talking about the Hauraki Gulf, and, and we'll get to the kōrero soon about its, its three ingoa, Hauraki aye, Gulf, aye. Te Kapa Moana, Te Moana Nui Otoi. Um, 
I wanted to ask you, with your experience and with your um, living in Tamaki and the mahi that you have done over the years, from your perspective, what is the state of the Gulf right now? Yeah, that, and I'll, uh, I draw from the successive State of the Hauraki reports uh, for, for what I'm about to say. The state of the Gulf is is pretty dire. And and I know there'll be people out there that say, yeah, but I can go out and catch a snapper. I can go out and catch a, catch a kahawai. I can, you know, I've seen some birds and some dolphins. Absolutely. But the, the very fact that those things are still there is despite our work, despite our efforts. You know, we, we have completely transformed land use on land. We've cleared forests, we've, we've put different land use things on them, and that's had a severe impact on sediment in the Gulf that's really choking it in many parts, in particular down the Firth, down that Tikapa part of, of the Gulf, uh, but not just restricted to there. And with the sediment also comes uh, nutrients that are, that are getting washed off from, from certain industry and agriculture and horticulture, and those have a different type of effect on, on the Māori of the Gulf. We've also uh, undertaken really wanton and harmful uh, practices. You know, we, we dredged up the most extensive mussel beds that used to extend for hundreds of square kilometres throughout, throughout the Gulf, uh, whereas now that's just mud. Uh, we've, we've reduced the, the numbers of, of fish, you know, by, by in some instances to be almost 10% of what they originally were um, before we started keeping records, and it's not even kind of before mm. Māori and, and even early Pākehā arrived. So the state of the Hauraki Gulf to me is, is dying. It really mm. is. And although we still see some, some vestiges of, of order, of health there, you know, that you can go catch a snapper or, or a kahawai or a kingfish maybe, um, that's, that's despite all, all the efforts that, that are going on. And so, yeah, I, I, to me, uh, she's dying. Mm. And when we look at that from a te ao Māori perspective, we and, and, and you'd already mentioned it earlier, we align that to um, the loss of Modi. Mm. And I guess for many who uh, don't understand what Modi is, would you be able to explain from your perspective what is Modi and how does something get or lose Modi? <laughs> yeah, gosh, you know, we haven't we haven't got all that long today, but I'll, I'll do my best, County. <laughs> Modi is uh, it's it's this invisible thing, yet you feel it. It's so intuitive. It's it's manifest in in the tohu maybe, and 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 the indicators you see that the Modi is either really good or or, or is not so good. Uh, let me try and give you an example. Many of you will remember in 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 the early two thousands, uh, a ship ran aground in in um, in the Bay of Plenty the wider Moana toy down there, or Taiti on the Astrolab Reef. And uh, the rena broke up and there was rubbish everywhere and there was oil coating all the birds. And some of you may have seen the oil washing up on the beaches, seen all the birds that were coated and had died. Um, now, if you felt anything when you saw those images, anything at all, uh, we have a word for that in Māori. It's called Modi. You were feeling the Modi of those birds have been impacted to you had been impacted. And, and what you felt, what you intuitively felt when you saw that is real. We just thought about it a bit more and we've got a word for it. And so uh, when, when that oil was cleaned up, you know, when they removed a lot of those containers, you know, we could see that the Modi in some places is back there and thriving again. And so Modi is something that you never actually touch or feel or, or can put into a bottle where there's no kind of measurement of it per se, but it's something you can sense. And, and I've, I've spoken with, with people who've been out actually fishing in the Hauraki Gulf, uh, and there might be a big workup, lots of bait fish and the um, gannets, the takapu are coming down and I hear around, and then you know, right in the middle of it all, a big brutus whale will, will come up the middle, take a big gulp of, of, of those little bait fish. And, and, and right at that point in time where you feel man, this is something amazing happening here. This is much greater than I am. And what you're sensing is the modi of the place. Mm. Similarly, when you go to a bay now and it's just barren, 
or it's just all mud bottom and there's there's virtually no life there at all and you think something's missing well you what we have a word to describe that it's the modi so it's the it's the collective of all those things that might be there or not there or the impacts of those things gee i had an amazing experience during lockdown actually um we we rode down to milford beach from our house uh, with my daughters we're just enjoying being outside and and we gazed out to sea and then just above the water um, we saw these uh, little birds. They might have been shearwaters or I'm, I'm not too sure what they were, one of those little um, seabirds. And they were flying all in this one direction. And then we noticed that there was there was hundreds of them flying. And then we looked to the left and we looked to the right and we saw that there were thousands of them flying. Mm. And, and it's like, wow, you know, the modi of those birds, the modi of the golf, right at that moment was, and that little aspect was, was actually pretty good. And I think, I mean, the the kupua, the words I'm going to use are, are not transliteration, they're not translations, <laughs> more transliterations, um, but other ways that we describe modi are around energy or life force. Yeah. And I guess those are some other things that people who may not understand or have a good grasp of the concept of modi could maybe think of, of those kupu, those words, the life force of something or the energy that is within that space that actually determines the health of that. Absolutely. And, and, and the, another good one to think of is it's the life-supporting capacity of soil or water. Mm. So if, if you have soil, you know, that's kind of good, but it might be devoid of nutrients or microbes and so nothing's really going to grow in it. So the mode of that soil isn't good. Similarly, water, you know, water is a really good one. Yeah, you can look at a beautiful spring and you can get a sense of whether the mode of that spring is strong or not. I visited Waikorapupu Springs down in Tākaka a few years ago and you could really sense the modi of that place was really vibrant. You know, contrast that with, you know, any estuarine um, creek or stream after a big rainfall event in Auckland, choked with sediment, maybe some rubbish and some plastic, and the modi of that river right then is really low. Mm. The Hauraki Gulf Forum have adopted a co-management model and... um, that in itself is about combining traditional ancestral indigenous practices and values with Western modern uh, practices and values, uh, a, a non-Māori or non-Indigenous system and a Māori Indigenous system. And I really want to explore that idea with you a little bit further in terms of while that's happening at a governance level, through the Hauraki Golf Forum, how do we draw at, draw on and integrate Indigenous practice, tikanga, Indigenous values into the restoration of the Gulf? Yeah, that's that's really at the heart of it. One, I think the biggest challenge that we have to overcome is the view that science is is the best body of knowledge for mm. us to draw from. And we need to, we need to open up uh, our, our views. We need to open up ourselves to say, actually, there's more than one way of knowing the world. There's more than one way of making sense of the world. There's more than one way of belonging in the world. And that, I think, is one of the key barriers. I know there's a lot of genuine intent by people saying, wow, there's some really good stuff here. Uh, but but conceptually, if if your worldview is that science is is better somehow, and and look for many years that was my view as well. I'm not I'm not you know I'm, I, I was part of the you know scientific way of explaining the world was was the way. It was the only way. Uh, and and the power that a worldview has over what we think and do is is really important. So I think that's going to be one of the the challenge is that not only, you know, the Hauraki Golf Forum and, and all those people who, who are working um, to try and help the Modi of the Gulf to try and overcome. However, d- down to the practicalities, one way that we can actually achieve tikanga uh, being practised and it's in the, the restoration of the Modi of the Hauraki Golf uh, is, is simply by enabling those people who understand what tikanga and who have the matauranga in the first place, mm. and and so that's a that's a model that says, gosh, we we know what we don't know, you know, and maybe this group of people are really strong in this understanding and stuff, and they could be 
carrying on with it, mahi. But you know, this group over here, they've got another way of knowing and making sense of and explaining the taiao, and they're part of, of the hauraki, um, and they're part of tikapa moana, and they're part of te moana nui atoi. Maybe we just give the mana to them and say, haere tonu, you know, get on with your work. And I think coming with that acceptance that um, there is more than one way of seeing the world and there is more one knowledge base that we can draw from as the first tip, and then having the trust that comes with them saying, yeah, go for it. But where I think the magic really is going to happen is where we can actually start to uh, weave together, you know, all the different knowledges and ways of being and knowing and doing that we have at our fingertips. Mm. And and I think for so long, um, our Māori communities have been told that the information is second rate, have been told that their ways are old and you know, based on superstition and stuff. Um, I, I know things are changing. I don't want to paint a purely pessimistic view. But I think we actually just need to say, you know what? We trust that you know what you know. And you though you know your tikanga, you know all your practices. Let's just give you space and time to get on with it. And then when they're comfortable uh, rediscovering, uh, retesting all their knowledge, because that's part of it as well of Matauranga. Um, then at that point we can say, right, now let's start trying to join hands. Let's start trying to bring everything together mm. because collectively I think we'll make the biggest difference for our golf. When we talk about tikanga in association with uh, the Hauraki Golf in particular, um, what I guess what are some of the things that people may not think are tikanga but are? Um, and don't quite understand that actually that's an Indigenous practice and it's put in place for this particular reason. One of those things that comes to my mind immediately is rahui, mm. putting a rahui yeah. on a particular part of the moana. So that's a, a, a prohibition of sorts, saying you cannot gather food from this area or you cannot swim in this area. Um, and that rahui is often, that, that practice is often done because of an event. So either someone has passed away in that area or has drowned in that area and so it's giving space for that um, wana to clear itself out. Uh, It might be that someone has gone missing in that area, so it's an opportunity for us to allow hine moana or tangarua or whoever you like to associate the atua of the moana (laughs) to, um, to return that person. But also it's around uh, our kaimoana. And so it might be that there's a a rahui put on a particular part of the moana because we need to allow for stocks to replenish or we need to allow for the ecosystem to rejuvenate. And so it does have a scientific element to it. Absolutely. It is tikanga Māori. Are there other tikanga that uh, maybe we we hear about or see in everyday practice to do with uh, the Hauraki Golf or to do with moana, but we don't necessarily associate to, or oh, that's a tikanga practice? <laughs> Yeah, there, there are. And so uh, a term that many people are becoming um, more and more familiar with, kaitiakitanga, mm. you know, for, for all intents and purposes, you know, guardianship, let's put it that way. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the intentional practice. I'm going to have to kind of be brief here, but the intentional practice of, of, of having an intergenerational sustainability lens on everything you do. And so it's become quite vogue now. Instead of going out to catch your limit, you go out and you limit your catch. Mm. Now that's that's what that's kaitiakitan. You know, when our people would say, "Okay, we need," we, you know, we've got a something going on. We need to catch a feed for the family. Just take enough for what you need. And so anyone who's out there, um, you know, I'm really impressed that many of the fishing shows now, will, you know, will say, "Hey, you know, just take what you need. You know, limit your catch." Uh, that that's actually uh, a very old uh, practice. It's a very old tikanga of saying, you know, just take what you need. Uh, and, and that's based on the, the idea that, you know, if if you store your food in the ocean uh, and that's just your cupboard, you know, wh- why would you why would you empty the cupboards? Mm. You just take what you need for your kai and you, when you're hungry again, you go back down again and you, and you take what you need for your kai again. And, and that's, I think, that even deeper connection and understanding with, with, with our, with our golf, with our, with our hinimoana, with our tangaroa, as you say, however we want to envisage it. And so that that idea that uh, 
yes, there are laws that govern, you know, what we can take, but there are also tikanga, which, which is a, about responsibility. So laws tell you what you can and can't do. Tikanga say, what is responsible for you to do? And that's where things like kaitiakitanga, you know, you know, limiting your catch, that's where, uh, you know, rahui, as, as you say, that's where they come into play uh, and, and are really important. And I think, I think another, another instance where people probably aren't as aware around tikanga actually being breached is, is the current practice we have of, of dumping um, treated uh, human waste into into our water bodies. Mm. You know, according to Tikanga, that that was that's absolutely a no-no. You know, you need to you need to treat it and then pass it back through Papatoanuku before uh, it flows back out into any water bodies and waterways. And and once again, that's a that's a the argument often comes back. Yeah, but it's perfectly safe to drink. I said, yeah, but that's according to one world view. That's according to those tests around physical health, you know, according to spiritual wealth, health and cultural health. Oh, gosh, you know, eating someone else's, you know, waste is probably not all that good for you. It's definitely not good for your modi. It's also a bit gross. Yeah. <laughs> we... Um, as you're talking, as we're talking about uh, responsibility, I think of a very core Indigenous value, which is thinking and working for the benefit of the seven generations ahead of us. Mm. And that it's not about whatever we do right now that affects us right now. It's about mm. what do we do right now that affects those seven generations. And I have had many, many kōrero about being a responsible tupuna and, you know, yeah. often we think about our tupuna and we think about our tupuna who have passed on, our ancestors that have passed on, and we think about them in the past tense, but we also don't realise that we are tupuna right now. Yeah. We are yeah. currently tupuna and the actions that we take, someone in the future will be thinking about us and what we've done or have been doing. And so in your conversation around um, our intergenerational way of thinking, I, I immediately go back to, it's not just about being responsible, but it's about being a responsible tupuna. You know, how are you a responsible ancestor so that those seven generations ahead of you look back on you and thank you for giving them a pristine wai or kai that they are able to feed themselves with because they are still your uri, they are still your descendants, they are your children and your grandchildren. And surely you don't want to starve them of not only kai, but of the ability to enjoy and engage with our resources in the way that we're supposed to. Absolutely. And and I and I was just about to, yeah, being a good ancestor is, is what I what I use in my teaching. And I never start with that. I always finish with with, you know, being a good ancestor is a good way to think about sustainability. Mm. In fact, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the term sustainability because it it talks about sustaining, it talks about enduring, and, and it's usually kind of framed in a how much how much can we derive from this without actually killing it altogether, which is really different to how would I be a good ancestor. Mm. Well, there's a lot of power in, in Indigenous knowledge, practice, mātauranga, in our history, how do we introduce that kōrero, that knowledge, to a non-Indigenous, non-Māori audience where it can be received well and where it can be accessible? Because I think that's important. Often when we don't understand a practice or a language or a custom, uh, it, be it becomes very inaccessible and so it becomes too hard. Oh. And we can't, we can't, you know, it's in the too hard basket and we just try something else. But how do we make that more accessible? How can we introduce these kōrero, these whakaaro, these thoughts and ideas um, to a broader audience? I would go back to the point I made earlier around making those people aware that they have a worldview. Mm. And, and this is critical. I mean, and I do this work with scientists, with engineers, with technologists. I've done it with people at NASA. I've done it with people you know, all over the world. And, and, you, and they say, oh, worldview, gosh, what's that? You know, and it's about you know, what you believe to be real and probable and impossible. And they go, oh, yeah, and they kind of, they're kind of getting it. And then I show them, a, I kind of remind them that you know, the world used to be flat. <laughs> There's often a few chuckles here and there. I say, oh, we laugh about it now, but mm. that was believed. The worldview was the world was flat. 
And, you know, and now we look back at it and laugh and now because our thinking's moved on from that. I see, but the power of that belief was very strong. Earlier this year, the power of my worldview was made very clear to me when I, I had a group of students on a field camp and it was, we were down at National Park and it's very good for stargazing and satellites and, you know, constellations. I said, oh, let's go and have a look at Stark now. And it was nice and clear. I said, oh, they said, what do satellites look like? And I said, oh, they just look like a star, that, but they go across, they move across the sky. So okay. And then one of them said, hey, there's one. And they said, hey, there's another and another and another. And we counted about 25-odd satellites all going across on the same line at the same spacing at the same speed. And I've got to tell you, many of those students and mine, our worldviews were being severely challenged. If you've heard of the saying, you can't believe your eyes, that's how we were for a few mm. seconds. What's going on here? What we were seeing didn't equate with what we believed to be real or possible. Now, sure enough, turned out to be jolly Elon Musk and his SpaceX <laughs> satellites and what have you. So we had a we had an explanation, but for a brief time there, the power of our worldview to not believe what we could see with our own eyes was very, very apparent. So that's the first thing I do with anyone when I'm trying to introduce them to different ways of knowing and making sense of the world. The other thing I show to them is that... Uh, in this knowledge and in this tikanga and in this worldview, I'm not asking you as an audience member or a participant in this workshop or wānanga to believe this. I'm asking you to believe that it is believed by some people. Mm. So that makes it very, much more accessible for people to say, oh, okay, kapai. They're not trying to ram this down my throat and say, yeah, I have to believe this if and I'm not, you know, I'm not buying into the concept, whatever. So that's another important step. And then another one that I find this is kind of the, the last step, is to show them that much Indigenous knowledge uh, is codified. Now, we codify science, we codify all sorts of knowledge, but it's codified in forms that are really good for passing down through generations, stories, stories with intrigue and, and, and murder and, and, and making off with someone's sister or wife or husband, you know, <laughs> stories that will grab people's attention. Uh, of of things like tanifa that might eat you up if you gobble you up if you go in that area. But often in those purako and those stories, if you delve into them, you will see that they are explanations for the tire. They are explanations for phenomena, for things that occur, for different seasons, for different months, uh, but explained according to a Maori worldview. And in fact, we can mm. show that many of those observations of those phenomena and many of the interpretations of how those things interact with us are actually consistent with the scientific method. And so they can and, be accurate and precise. Yeah. yeah. And that's so important because so often you hear people chuckle and say, oh, those are just myths and legends. But actually our tupuna were that clever that they put it in a format that we would always remember. And Absolutely. actually, when you go back to those pūrāko, especially our most earliest pūrāko, those pūrāko of creation, you know, te kore, te pō, te and I know Hana Tapiata talks about this quite a bit, that those creation stories are the blueprint for living well. And so we yes. come back in the circle of Modi and we go, oh, yes, if we do this, if we live this way, if we think about, you know, the darkness and then the light, that's the potential and then the, you know, achievement of that potential. And, and there's all these different, um, yeah. I guess you can associate so many other philosophical meanings to these purako when you stop thinking of them as children's myths and legends. But actually it was just a really great way to teach our tamariki. Yeah these life skills right from an early age. Exactly. And the reason they're seen as myths and legends is because the knowledge isn't codified in a way that's consistent or in a way that's consistent with the person who's receiving its worldview. Mm. And that's and that's why I go back to it's really important that we, and, and the, the best thing about acknowledging that we all have a worldview, uh, and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that, we all have one, but if we all recognise we have one, we might accept that the person next to us will have one too, and theirs might be different. You know, this mahi that you do uh, in and around um, tikanga, uh, combining it with your science knowledge, how, 
I don't want to use the word popular. <laughs> That's probably not the right word. How well received is it being out in the world at the moment? If we're thinking about incorporating tikanga, mātauranga, taketake, so our Indigenous knowledge, into all of these varying spaces that we're working in, and if we're talking about us right now in this corridor, into the um, the restoration of the Hauraki Gulf, how well is that being received? Is it improving? Is it declining? Are you getting asked to uh, do more and more corridor with Rupu across the motu, groups across the country, and helping them to understand and incorporate a different worldview to uh, be combined with their own worldview? Yeah, and, and so my response to that is it's absolutely blowing up everywhere in a mm. good way. There's so much interest, and, and, and I believe genuine interest, um, not not a vision matauranga policy driven type interest where you know oh I need to I need to like this to make my research proposal look better I sense a genuine across the board interest you know from within Maoridom as well like trying to understand gosh our matauranga really has some strong foundational frameworks to it um, and as as rigorous and, and as accurate and can be precise uh, and all those things, as as well as my, my scientist colleagues, you know, across the motu, across the world, you know, when when we when we reflect on, you know, just this year alone, where Rangi Matamua is recognised as the Prime Minister's chief mm. and a science communicator, yes. and then receives the Callaghan Award for, you know, communicating science. That to me is a strong, strong signal that, you know, Maturanga is being seen, you know, just a lot right alongside science. And, and and it's also been evident in the number of, of uh, requests I get and, and the Rangi Matamuas and the Rediata Makihas and, you know, all of those amazing people. Some of my most favourite humans. <laughs> yeah, to, 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 to speak from, you know, from the highest levels, from, mm. from uh, you know, reporting at international keynotes and conferences to the ones that are my most favourite, which is down the marae, you know, talking to them about the wetland down the back or the, or the pātuna that used to be down there and how can we get that bit across the spectrum. But, but increasingly, you know, it, it's from our it's from our tauiwi uh, members of society too. And I've got lots of colleagues in the different research centres I work in uh, who are absolutely, you know, into this. You know, th- there, of course, there will be detractors. Uh, but I would argue anyone who, who entered this with an open mind uh, and who would be who was willing to listen to to a, a good at sound argument uh, would be hard pressed to not understand, you know, the value of of what we're doing. Mm. One of my favourite fakatoki is kamuri kamua, and it's really encompasses everything we've been talking about so far in this corridor. That in order for us to move forward, we have to look back. Yeah. And we take that knowledge and we take that those pūrāko, those stories, that mātauranga, that learning, um, we take that from the past and we use it to help us move forward. Whether we learn from it because it wasn't a good thing and <laughs> yeah. we do something better or whether it was something that worked really well that we, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it <laughs> so yeah. we can continue to work through. Is there um, something from our past that you think we must have for our future when it comes to the restoration of the Hauraki Gulf? Absolutely. And and that is Matauranga. Hmm. And, and that might seem a real simple and, and, and flippant answer, but but the, the level and, and the these consequence and significance of that is huge. What I think we have at the moment. Uh, is a fragmentary, uh, yet yet it's growing, it's getting pieced back together, body of knowledge about tikanga, about puraka, about maramataka, all that type of information about the taiao regarding to to um, the Hauraki Gulf, te kapumana, te mononui atoi. It exists uh, in, in, in books and in, and in people's calendars and, and aunties and uncles and quarters notebooks and in people's heads, um, largely, it, it's a Google-type knowledge, I, it exists. It tells us this, it tells us that. What's beginning to happen more recently is that we're picking up that aspect of mātauranga that hadn't been practised so widely for a long time. And that was, as you said, Kiani, the, the question of, gee, did that work or did that not work? Or 
or the continual testing of of maramataka observations, you know, ia marama, you know, ia tau. And so that we, instead of just uh, blindly following or, or receiving, you know, this is the, and this is what it is, so this is what it is, we actually, that comes to us and we start picking up the practice of testing and, you know, and saying, oh gosh, you know, the, the maramataka says, you know, these are the best nights to plant kumara, well, let's plant 90% of the crop on, on that on that one or those days. Let's plant a little bit outside of that because what that means is, you know, Maturanga always accepted that change was going to occur at some stage and so mm. built with into it with systems to keep testing uh, the quality of, of our knowing because we recognise that, hey, things will always change. It can be rapid, it can be slow. Uh, and so that that notion of 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 in order to move forward, we need to keep gazing back has absolutely never been more, more paramount. And I think Matauranga gives us both uh, that, that huge repository of knowledge that we can draw from, and it's fragmentary, but it's kind of coming together again, as well as gives us the tools to keep building it and adding to it and keeping it current. I just want to um, touch on maramataka because you have mentioned it a couple of times and I and I don't know that everybody is familiar with the maramataka. Maramataka is our Māori lunar calendar, so it's our, it's our Māori time system, I oh. suppose, is, is one easy way to, to look at it and talk about it. And our maramataka uh, goes in line with the moon and the different phases of the moon. And there are tohu signs mm. that tell us, again, about the modi of something or the well-being of something. And so the tohu of the marama, so it might be a full moon, rakonui, which is our highest energy time. Ideally, you'd be looking for different tohu, different signs out in the moana of fish moving or of, you know, schools of fish moving. Or And again, I am not a maramataka specialist, so please go and talk to someone like Matuariri Atamakiha. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when we think about the Modi and we think of aligning it with things like Maramataka, it's really good to note what those tohu are, what those signs are to look out for, because when wow. they're not there, that's another indicator of the modi of that space. Oh. If you're supposed to be seeing these particular actions take place or, you know, the migration of fish or the blooming of a particular flower or the, um, you know, a certain manu, a certain bird laying eggs at this particular time, if you're not seeing those things, then you know our environment is out of whack because... Those, are, those for generations, those have been noted down for generations on this particular day, this particular thing happens, um, which tells us that we're in this particular season, of which I know there are seven seasons of summer in the, in the Maramataka. And so, you know, it's a, it's yeah. a, very, it's a very beautiful, um, it's a very beautiful body of knowledge to, to hold and to learn. And I think when we're talking about the Modi of the Hauraki Gulf, it goes hand in hand with us learning about the Maramataka. And we've had a really great introduction uh, as a society. We've had a really great introduction to things like Maramataka through the celebration of Matariki and the resurgence of Matariki into our, you know, everyday uh, culture and society. And I think Maramataka is the next thing that uh, we need to begin to grow to help us again um, learn about our Indigenous science. (laughs) I, I agree. And, and you know, and, and I'm learning about the maramataka as well. I mean, I've had some wonderful interactions with Matuaririata Makiha, and I just feel so blessed to be able to spend time with them. Um, and, and another uh, young man who's been doing some work with the maramataka, um, Te Kahuratai painting, he shared with me their, their thinking and the explanation of the maramataka is a, as a stellar lunar ecological calendar. Wow. And so what that what that broadens already is that, you know, the, the lunar are the, are the nights of the moon and those mm-hmm. are kind of every 29 or so nights. Uh, the, 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 the stellar component is that each each month, uh, and these are, these are months of nights of the moon, not the months of the Gregorian calendar, yes. the January, February, March, April, Tamir, Tamir, Tamir. Um, and those are marked by a star or a group of stars. And, and for every individual kind of night or corresponding day of, of the month in that season, there will be um, kind of guidelines around, you know, the Modi is really good for doing these activities for that day and the Modi is really not really good for doing those activities. And that's, 
I think that's going to be of critical importance. And you also bring up another, and it's sorry, it's brought up in my mind another important point where one of one of the differences between science and Matarana is that often in science we're trying to determine what's right. We're trying to look for a universal rule, mm. and that's kind of the ultimate goal of science. Can, can we get some universality to, to what this what we're doing? Whereas for, for Matarana, and let's say Marmataka in particular, we don't seek that at all. We accept that actually every ecosystem is unique. Every every area where those people are you know, um, is, is unique. And while we might anticipate that there would be significant correlation and overlap between certain things happening for different um, iwi hapu whanos, maramataka, we also don't expect that they would be exactly the same. And mm. I think, I think bringing in bringing in an acceptance of variance, and that'll be something that the scientists listening will understand, uh, is important because if we try and see things as a blanket, you know, universal, trying to understand it as a blanket rule, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. That's when we have things like quota management systems and Snapper 1 and Crayfish 2, you know, there's lines on maps, but they don't correspond with anything real in the tile. And so while it might be helpful in a management sense, it makes no sense in, in a tile uh, framing. So I believe, um, and, and I'm, I'm reminded of, of the work of um, Dana Umupuya Marai, uh, where they're looking to uh, rekindle their, their, their maramataka, rekindle work down there. And I know there's more going on. I'm just, that's one that comes to mind uh, for me right now. As you're talking, I am looking at my maramataka dial um, <laughs> to see what day we are on on the maramataka. And I won't say it because it's irrelevant because this podcast will go out on a different day. Oh. Um, but I'm drawn to the tangaroa phase of oh. the maramataka and, and looking at the tangaroa um, phase of, you know, a time for being in and around the water during that tangaroa phase and reminding ourselves that the maramataka, the Māori lunar calendar also includes give back days. And so while there are days, certain moons that align to, you know, fishing or planting or having a rest or meditating or however you're going to associate those meanings to your life today, it's really important to note that on the maramataka are also give back days and days that we give back to papotuanuku, to and what do we do to give back to our moana, and in particular for us in this corridor, the Hauraki Gulf? I do want to move us into the corridor about, you know, I, I talked about kamua, kamuri kamua, and if we're going to talk about kamua, what's what's ahead? <laughs> <laughs> what's coming? Um, I want to ask you about the future of the Hauraki Gulf. In particular, I know, and it's there are examples of this everywhere in, in our country, something is looked after when it's given mana, when it is given a status, a sense of importance. And I know for our iwi Māori who whakapapa to te moana nui o toi, to tikapa moana, to the waitemata, they already, within their own whānau hapu iwi marae, give that moana mana. But it's not necessarily the same from a Western perspective. Not everybody will give that moana the same mana. So I want to ask you, is the next logical step for the Hauraki Gulf to give it a level of mana that may be personhood? And I know that we've seen that in the Whanganui Awa, and I know that we've seen that in Te Uriwera. And I'm keen to know your perspective around personhood for the Hauraki Gulf. What and maybe if you could tell me what you think that means. <laughs> I and I, I think I'll start with with discussing Te Uriwera Metiawa Tapua first. I mean those, those are those are are literally worldview ground breaking pieces of legislation where we're looking to incorporate Maori philosophy, Maori ways of knowing and being in the world you know, into the legal framework in order that, that you know, that Te Uriwera um, has, a, has a power and a majesty. You know, I'm, I'm drawing from recollection from the Act itself. When you read it, it's like poetry. 
It's just beautiful. It talks about mana and it talks about Modi. Uh, and then we think about Te Awatupua, uh, being described as, you know, it's it's physical and metaphysical elements all combined together. Maitikahui maunga, you know, kite moana, from the, from the mountain to the sea as an indivisible whole. And that is that is quite clearly Māori philosophy and framing. And, and for many reasons, I believe those are light years ahead of, of thinking um, and Mark really fundamental shifts in the way we view our relationship with the world. There were also some pretty uh, unique uh, papa connections that made those two particular acts uh, relatively straightforward to achieve, you know, for, for Te Uriwera, Tu Hoi. Uh, for Te Awatupua, it was, it was all the people who papa to, to the Wanganui. Um, I understand that there is some uh, advanced discussion around Taranaki Maunga as well, around giving that legal personality, and and that will be really interesting to me because that would be the first example where you've genuinely got quite different iwi and hapu around the Maunga who are saying, actually, uh, yes, uh, we're going to come together because the mana of the Maunga is bigger than all of us together, mm. and and giving them the Maunga mana. Uh, will then in turn enable its modi to be restored. So then we naturally think about about the Hauraki Gulf, about Te Kamawana, about Te Moana Nui Atoi. And so it makes sense that we should at least have that discussion. One of the challenges I see is that there are many, many mana whenua groupings uh, around the Hauraki Gulf uh, and and in fact, the the that line on a map that encompasses the Hauraki Gulf Marine Park does not correspond neatly with any uh, defined iwi, um, whanau hapu iwi, um, mana whenua kind of understood boundaries or, or or lines. And so, for me, that will be. Oh, that will be a challenge, but I don't think it should be a challenge that should stop us having the conversation by coming together and saying, what, what has uh, Te Uriwera done for Tuhoi and Te Uriwera? What has the Te Awatupo Act done for the Whanganui River and the Whanganui peoples? And if, if the discussion at that point is actually it's a realise some amazing things, then why not? Why would we not want that for, for the Hauraki Gulf? So I, I would argue that that discussion should definitely be had. Maybe uh, as, as an interim or as an alongside or, or if it's decided that, that, that no, we don't want to go there. Uh, another approach that, that me and some other colleagues have taken uh, that's inspired by both of those acts, is instead of thinking about it in, in that sense, thinking about it in terms of giving voice. Mm. So we have a project, uh, we had a, a pilot project uh, called Te Awaroa, Voice of the River, where we looked at the, the troubles that were befalling many of our rivers and then it's always talked about in scientific framings and anthropocentric framings. How how healthy is the water for humans? How how much fish can we take or eels can we take out of the river? Um, you know, how much can we pollute the river because we want to do our industry and our to me and have cities and things like that? Well, we flipped it around and said, well, what's the river saying? What would the river say? And maybe using that approach as uh, something that I have put forward in a number of fora for for the Hauraki Gulf, uh, given I felt the complexity and the challenges and the pushback that might come from trying to take a legal personality discussion. And if instead we frame it around what's the voice of, of the Gulf, what she's saying. Now, every, every iwi mana whenua group, every community has a voice. So does the tohe, so does the tuatua. I was going to say tohero, there's no tohero. <laughs> so does the aihe, you know, so does the rimurapa. Uh, so does the, the you know, the, the pāpaka. Mm. All of those things have a voice when we think about it in that framing. And so, I, you know, I don't have 
I don't have the answers, but I have some ideas about ways that we could move that forward. One thing that has really, really struck me is the framing of, of the plight of the Hauraki Golf in terms of Modi. It has revolutionised thinking at Foundation North with their Golf Innovation Fund together thinking. Uh, you know, it appeared first, and and, and I need to um, get the whakapapa of this right, you know, Modi for, for mana whenua has been there or since forever, but mm. Modi appearing in a, in a strategic document, you know, it came in the sea change Taitumu Taipari plan. You know, restoring the Modi was part of was part of, of the vision. And so that inspired places like uh, Foundation North to set up the Golf Innovation Fund together. And, and that's changed the way people think and feel about the golf. And, and to me, that's one of the inspiring things about Mātauranga that it, that it can bring. And so back, back to your question, you know, legal personality is an option I think we should discuss, as well as maybe, uh, you know, giving, giving voice to, to the golf, uh, giving her a voice. Mm. Kia ora. So my final partai to you is given your Korero that we've just had, your experience, your your uh, interpretation of the state of the Gulf right now. What is your vision and your hope for the future of the Hauraki Gulf of Te Kapa Moana, of Te Moana Noi Otoi? What do you see and envision happening to help restore that space? Ah, oh, those are two questions. My vision <laughs> for it <laughs> is that is, is that her Modi is, is vital, is strong, is replenished. Uh, how we go about doing that, uh, it would maybe summarise a little bit of what we've traversed today on this corridor. It's around uh, giving mana, whenua, the mana to just get out and, and do, drawing from their mātauranga, drawing from their tikanga, and then once um, they've become more comfortable with that, then we can start looking at tying together all the other science and technical, because uh, because to me it's when we can weave together the mātauranga uh, with the science, uh, that to me is the way that we will realise the vision of of restoring the Māori to, to the Hauraki Golf, te kapamuana, te mana nui atoi. Kia ora. Thank you so much for sharing your kōrero today, uh, for your whakaaro around these uh, varying topics that are to do with mātauranga and how we incorporate that into the restoration of the Gulf. I appreciate your time. You and I have both had this kōrero via Zoom, so if anybody was thinking <laughs> that it sounded like we were in two different rooms, we are. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate I appreciate you giving us your time today. So, tēnā koe tēn, tēnā tēnā and I hopefully, uh, you know, it's for the benefit of the golf. And so, yeah, this was a very easy yes to say to come along and have a quarter today. Kia ora.